for yet another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias. I'm sitting here is my cinematic cohort, Greg Srizavazdi. Hello. DeepestDream.com. DeepestDream.com. As of now. MovieSharkDeblore.com. And big announcement for all of our listeners out there and all of our viewers. You can now find our podcast on iTunes. Yes, and I I do want to apologize. I was... Telling oh you a little oh bit of shop God. talk that I couldn't hear it, but I, I listened to it, and it's great quality. That was just because I'm an old man who can't hear things. Oh so God. everyone's doing a great job, and it really looks wonderful on the Apple App Store site. So please download it, and we'll yes. have links on our both our sites. That is so. absolutely correct. You can subscribe even. Yeah. Um, and Lydia, Lydia is the one responsible for this. Lydia is still part of the team. Who's, even who's Lydia? Who's Lydia? I, I don't remember. You, you know that person that defected oh. and moved to oh, and okay. moved to Asheville? Okay. All right, all right. Yeah. I kind of remember. I kinda of remember. Twinkle yeah. of yeah. in our rear view. No, but she's wonderful. Yeah. Very talented. So Lydia yeah. is still handling my website That's and she's great. doing things like setting up the iTunes and mm. and administrating that for us. So She's doing a wonderful job. Yes. And Jordan is doing a wonderful job, uh, doing camera and editing. Yes. Brian for the sound, I, I'm still sketchy about. I, yeah. I don't. He has good movie movie guy, but I and he's a good guy. I don't know about the sound though. And he's not even listening. No, he, I'm listening. <laughs> he's he's ready to he's ready to hit me as I leave today. So I do more than one thing around here. So if the sound suffers, is because I'm cleaning up after you guys. Oh. <laughs> and he's good at comebacks too. So. See if I bring See? you food anymore. Uh. <laughs> but everyone's doing a great job. So. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and the feedback yeah. that we're getting on the show is great. Do you know yeah. that 1% of our listeners yes. are, are in Italy? No way. Seriously? Yes. By the way, the viewership spikes up whenever I'm not here. I just want to throw oh, that will out you there. Stop that? When we look at the ratings, there's a big spike. <laughs> when, so. and, and I just want to mention, Italy, though. Mention, mentioning yeah. Italy, though, yeah. one of my favorite L.A. Film Festival future filmmakers who will be calling in sometime during August mm -hmm. She has been in Italy. She was invited to the Gaffoni Film Fest, okay. which plays blockbusters that are in theaters and invites children and teens from around the world mm. to come and watch, discuss, and talk to the filmmakers of these blockbusters and also rate them. Mm. So Natalia Ferreira, Natalia got invited as a California representative to go to Gaffoni. Wow. That's such an amazing experience must be a profound experience profound journey so yeah, i i can't huge. so when she you wow. know she's coming back i think this week uh yeah. then she has another film project on the east coast but wow. she'll be she'll be calling in in one of the upcoming mondays and tell us all about gafoni and all about all of her films i'm very excited because natalia is she's so talented and mm. and mm. i have to say her sense of humor and her sarcasm yeah they're very dark and twisted like ours. Okay, very good. You know, very quick thing. One of my all-time favorite movie-going moments for me, movie-going journeys, was going to UCLA and taking an Italian filmmaking 
course, just watching Fellini films, Antonioni films, and I look back on that twenty. I was twenty twenty one, and that t- to this day, that was my favorite time as far as just watching films mm-hmm. on campus, and you know all the great films, you know, neorealism, The Leopard, all the Dolce Vita, yes. all of it. So, yeah. Yeah, no, but uh, you know, and I mentioned and Italy. I mentioned Italy, and you know, our fan base, right, right, because I had the privilege again. We had a special ArcLight Slam Dance Cinema Club, a special mid-month screening. Right. Normally, it's the second Sunday and Monday of every month. There was a special one Wednesday night of Fat Kid Begins. Oh, okay. okay, and some of our listeners were in town from Florida. They listened yeah. to us in Florida, and they stayed till after the screening and the Q&A to come up and introduce themselves and tell me how much they enjoy our show. That was really... What did, what did they say specifically? They are very smart and astute and insightful. No, they love... They, they love the guests and uh. they love all the con- all the audio from directors. Oh, good, good. Yeah. And yeah. ideally, that's what we're striving for mm-hmm. behind the lens. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, lots, lots of good, good stuff there. How is moderating that bad kid? How was that for you? That was absolutely fabulous. Yeah. I mean, that's that film is just completely holy happiness, Batman. <laughs> you know, it yeah. it's it and it will be out on VOD and digital uh, in September, I believe. Interesting story that's happening with that. It premiered at Slam Dance. Warner Brothers snatched it up out of the box. Mm-hmm. But what they also did is they picked up the rights to do a narrative feature that there's talk they want to get Julia Roberts to star as uh, Patricia Wilson, who was the head of Make-A-Wish Foundation, who put this whole Bat Kid Day in San Francisco together. Right. But because of the anticipated narrative they want to do, they're short shrifting on the documentary in terms of, oh, yes, right. being in theaters, some of the theaters it's already been pulled from. Okay. Because they're trying to wait to build momentum for the narrative. And I think that's a huge mistake because the film in and of itself with the real events told from the perspective of it, it, the direct Dana Nachman who did the f- who directed the film. She came in at she was late to the party, came in after the fact, okay. uh, after the whole event had taken place. So she went back and interviewed the volunteers and the part- and the participants, the mayor of San Francisco, the chief of police of San Francisco, Hans Zimmer. Uh, and yeah. w- what's interesting when you watch the film yeah. and you hear everyone talk that every single one, their first experience and the most inspiring Batman experience they had, mm. Adam West on a TV show in the 60s. <laughs> I wow. kid you not. That yeah. was one of uh, that was a great revelation. You know, to hear that. indelible memories. Right now you have two books, Hitchcock and Truffaut, and I've never read this for our YouTube viewers, Hitchcock's Films Revisited. Yes. How is that book? It is superb. It is a great reference book. There's some great commentary. It's by, yes, we can touch these. We're going to okay, screw I'm it because we don't have a big visual display today. Okay, okay. Yes, I didn't I didn't go hunting for, <laughs> for visual aids today. I'm yeah. so sorry. Yeah. But yeah, by Robin Wood. And it's broken out. It's got lots of stills from the films. Mm. And uh, breaks it out film by film. There's an overall introduction, mm. his, uh, you know, an overview of Hitchcock, and then it goes through a lot of, you know, obscure films, Young and Innocent. 
Wow, right. The, the early stuff. A the lot of people, early stuff. A lot of the Hitchcock cinephiles and enthusiasts say his early stuff is the best. That's a big argument among all the Hitchcock. Lodger. Yeah. The Lodger. The Lodger. The Lodger. Right, right. But, yeah, and it's interesting because a lot of his early stuff mm-hmm. is when Alma was really involved in it. Yeah. As yeah. well. Alma was always involved. But, and the Alma I'm referring to is uh, Alma Ravel, who was his wife, partner, I mean... She was his. When you talk about a complete partnership and right hand, it was Hitch and Alma. You know, I was trying to make a point the other day, and I wasn't so clear about it. But even I was trying to say how even with the technology today, you can have a, a movie that's budgeted at, at say seventy-five to even one hundred twenty million, but they won't have the same kind of visual arresting style, which also brings out raw emotion, like to the level of an Alfred Hitchcock. And I think one of the reasons why is a lot of people. Oh, they're they're really focused on bringing that hundred million dollar package together without mm-hmm. actual. You always talk about the visual design. I think the visual design is actually more well thought out from l- just more independent filmmakers at a lower mm-hmm. budget. Yep. So if you want to see those arresting films, you could probably have to see something that's a two to five seven million dollar film. It tops, yeah. Yeah. Because everybody has become so reliant on CGI and digital technology. Or relaxing on shooting coverage and mm-hmm. making it in the editing room, which is great. Editing is great, but as far as being a painterly uh, visionary, I don't think... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we d- we're missing that today. And, you know, there's some hope out there. Inaritu, uh, I love Birdman. That's an example. And I don't know if you've seen the trailer to The Revenant. It looks... Not er- yet. Yeah, shot in natural light out in the elements, and it's... Um, beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. But that's just one of a few people, mm-hmm. I think. That's, so. And that that's just it. But, you know, we are going to have uh, some great guests today calling in at the half-hour mark. Uh, direct Co-directors Samantha Futterman and Ryan Miyamoto are mm. going to be talking about their documentary, Twinsters. And this is a really interesting documentary. Mm-hmm. Um because Samantha had found out she has a twin. Right. And it was because of social media right. that she found this out. So we're going to hear all about that story. And, with, and It's it, an amazing story, by the way. It's, it's just, it, it really is. And, right. in, and interestingly, and I'm going to mention this to Samantha. Samantha, he, a few years ago, there was this little indie film called Dear Lemon Lima. Okay. Adorable film by Susie Unessi. And uh, starred a... Marvelous actress, Savannah Wiltfong. Hello up in Alaska, Savannah, and Mom, Wendy, and crew. Um, Yes, we have fans all over the place. Wow, you're connecting. Connecting. Yeah. But Samantha, who is also an actress, was in Dear Lemon Lima with Savannah and uh, directed by Susie. So, you know, it's I love it when the whole, all the circles connect. Yeah. And later in the show, you'll get to hear circles connecting when we talk about the new documentary, Listen to Me, Marlin, mm. by Stephen Riley. Yeah. Um, fascinating, and you can even hear about my personal experiences with Marlon Brando. I This will be new to me, so that's yes. pretty awesome. <laughs> and he's my, well, it's not too, so he's my favorite actor. He and Monty Clift are my, my all-time favorite actors. Uh, bar none. So. Bar none, huh? Yeah, I'm excited for this one. But, you know, and then... I have I have to I have to get it in. I have to get this in. Mm-hmm. Southpaw opened this weekend. Yeah, I I didn't check it out. Was it on par with Nightcrawler? I'm, I'm assuming. Jake Gyllenhaal's performance. <laughs> okay. 
The Academy should be chastised. They should be tarred and feathered if they overlook Jake for an Academy Award nomination this year. Okay. He is amazing. Right. It's written by Kurt Sutter. Sons of Anarchy, right? So yeah. it's testosterone-fueled. It's directed by Antoine Fuqua. Even That's, more testosterone. Yeah. Right, right. Um, boxing, down on his top of his game, down on his luck. Right. I have to wonder... How big a fan is Kurt Sutter of the Rocky franchise? Mm. Chapter and verse, I lifted scenes from Rocky that are mimicked almost verbatim. Right. Uh, in addition to all the regular boxing cliches that you would expect. So to play devil's advocate, what if one, one was saying that it's just a template? Rocky's a template where you can actually jump off and create your own narrative. Well, y when you're pulling from all six of the films... <laughs> And right. that's, I think the only one that was missed was Rocky II. Um, wow. Okay. But okay. Uh, Scott Mance, our, our buddy Scott Mance of yeah. Access Hollywood. Mr. Scott Mance um, and I were joking about uh, the film because I told him, I said, yeah, I did a whole template and went scene <laughs> for scene, even some of the dialogue. No, no. Really? Th it's tweaked enough. Okay. To you know, references like in Rocky III right. between Mr. T as, as Clubber Lang yelling mm -hmm. at Talia Shire's Adrian about mm -hmm. you need a real man you need mm -hmm. a real man and then here we've got you know situation reversed with the antagonist in Southpaw yelling at Jake Gyllenhaal's character you know you're not a man you're not a man you know, right you, right so you have to see it it's worth it for the performance the boxing sequences out of this world and I know that Fuqua is a boxer um, but well, a absolutely absolutely amazing amazing lensing going on here well i love hip-hop and i love the soundtrack mm -hmm. how did the sound the music blend for you since you're not an avid hip-hop fan how did it blend as well, james, music to well, james horner did the score right right and uh, very brooding and haunting in so the, the score works in the darker moments of the film okay. and there are some very dark moments you know if you think about burgess meredith and and sylvester stallone right then you're going to see Forrest Whitaker and Jake Gyllenhaal. I mean, they're, the parallels are just right. so, so intense. But again, the cinematography, uh, Mauro Fiore mm -hmm. did the cinematography, mm -hmm. utilizing GoPros. You okay. actually have, okay. we've never seen this before, with the camera like right here on the forehead area with a punch coming at it. This, it's phenomenal. You, I mean, it is that is the thrilling aspect of this film, yeah. but it is formulaic. It is formulaic, and it stays in a certain lane. And it stays in a certain lane. But um, if you like the lane, but if you like the, and I love, I right. love the Rocky Lane. Okay, <laughs> right, a, right. A gal from Philly loves boxing. Of course, yeah, right. You right, know, right. bar none. Yes. You know. So, so would you recommend the film? I would definitely recommend people see it. I okay. mean, for Gyllenhaal's performance, Rachel McAdams, who plays his wife, yeah. is the only other actress I could see playing that role is mm -hmm. Elizabeth Banks. Okay. Um, an adorable young, new young actress, Una Lawrence, plays Gyllenhaal's daughter. Okay. She is next going to be seen in Pete's Dragon, the remake of Pete's Dragon. Oh, nice. Yeah. She is spunky. She's precocious, and I see big things for her. Curtis Fifty Cent Jackson's in this, mm. um, and I just I love watching him as an actor. I really do. And everybody delivers here. The film delivers, but it is 
it's Rocky one through six, <laughs> skipping Rocky two. <laughs> Yeah. But is it Creed? So that's an, that's that's next. that's what probably uh, not because that looks pretty interesting too. That's what I'm really so, waiting to see. Yeah. is Creed. But you and I saw a film that isn't out yet. It'll be out August seventh. Mm-hmm. That we just saw the other day. What did you think of the Prophet? As far as I think it is visually gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting premise. You know, I I give I give. You know, props to Selma Hayek, who produced this has been a project dear to her heart for a while. Yeah. And she hung in there to get it made. And it's very interesting. They take because Gahil Gibran's The Prophet, it's 26 philosophical essays. Right. And they handpicked, well, they handpicked one, two, three, four, five, six, like eight. And each of these was chapterized with a different animator and director. So you have all these different animation styles tuned to the emotion of that particular essay. Yeah, it's very seamless, though, when it comes to... It's yeah. so beautifully, beautifully done. I mean, you have you have visuals in here from Bill Plimpton, Tom Moore, mm. um, who did Secret of the Kells, I believe. Mm. I mean, just gorgeous, gorgeous stuff. And hopefully we're going to be talking to some of the people involved with The Prophet... You know, if you're a child and you're watching this, and because when you're a youth, all the heavy themes, at least to me, came from reading comics and watching animated films and mm-hmm. learning about life and death and tragedy, heartache, and resilience. And I think this film, since it's it's since it's based on such an important piece of work, and I think it'll really hit home with children, um, mm-hmm. and they'll grow through the process too. So it's a it's a beautiful beautiful piece of filmmaking yeah Ch- mm-hmm. and children are not normally exposed to philosophy right right so i i i do agree i think this is it's a wonderful and there was a, a young girl who was at our screening right and mm-hmm. she seemed particularly enamored with it emotionally involved with it as yes. well yes yeah and i mean the voice cast is great we've got liam neeson selma hayek does yeah. her own vo- does voice john krasinski alfred molina frank langella and our little, our our little beastie from the Southern Wild, <laughs> Quivenzene Wallace. I can't pronounce that. That's yes. awesome that you did. But yes. So. You know, it's it's a beautiful looking film, and one of the things I really appreciated about it is, it is philosophical, but it's not preachy. Yeah. You know, it tells a story, and all those messages and all those themes are are woven into the the structure. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, I mean, so. the overall film is directed by Roger Allers, and I and. It is. It's a very seamless mail because you can pick up the book, The Prophet, and you could read all the essays, right. but they're all standalones. Yeah. To see them all interwoven yeah. into a thematic story li- narrative line, mm-hmm. so well done. I but think it, when you say handcrafted narrative, I think that this is really a intimate handcrafted story. I think you're absolutely right. So and yeah. Yeah, talk about handcrafted. But we've got something really handcrafted that is in mm. theaters this Wednesday. Mm. And that is Listen to Me, Marlin. And you know what? I am kind of embarrassed. I, I didn't see the doc. How <gasps> does it rank as far as things about Marlin? This is it is superb. It is outstanding. It is written, directed, and edited by uh, British documentarian, uh, documentarian Stephen Riley. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very interesting how, and the whole thing is told, 
by Brando himself. Brando, it turns out, right. dot, he underwent self-hypnosis. He did, you know, for, uh, you know, Freudian psychoanalysis on himself. Wow. 300 hours of audio tapes well, he made. Well, that's an interesting angle to the documentary because with someone like a Marlon Brando, you could just make it some kind of talking head yeah. documentary, a lot of B-roll footage, and that's fine. I mean, that, that could be a fun TNT kind of situation, but this is different. This is beyond different, okay. and you use the phrase talking head. Well, I'm here to tell you mm. there is a talking head, and it is Marlon's head because very prescient and foreshadowing what would come in the future. He worked with VFX uh, Scott Billups in the 80s. Mm. And he believed that, and we hear him talking right. in a tape, saying this, that the future would be where actors would be supplanted into computer screens. He saw the handwriting on the wall. Right. So he had his head back then digitized through, in what was digital in the 1980s, through wow. a program called Cyberware. And this came, <laughs> this, Fascinating, this footage, actually. this imagery, this yeah. project came, Stephen discovered in the course of going through with an archivist inventorying the entire warehouse where all of Brando's things were taken after his death. They've been sitting there for 10 years. Right. And discovered this and thought, wouldn't it be really interesting to have it fully 3D rendered for today mm -hmm. and actually have it more or less like a haunting spirit with the mechanics because you can make it, you know, the you can do the map the facial movements so it appears as as if Brando is telling this story and speaking. It is haunting. Wow. It is and then he reconstructed Brando's house from Mulholland that was up on Mulholland that's yeah. since been raised, reconstructed it on a London sound stage and stacks a lot of this archival material in there and then fluidly moves the camera like a ghost. That's it, a lot of work it, and a lot of spirit involved. But you know, you gotta wow. I, you know, I wondered how did this even come to Stephen? A Brit yeah. how you know, how did you get this in your hands to tell Marlon Brando's story by Marlon Brando? And here's what he had to say. Um, well, there was um, it was a lovely sort of co combination of coinc nice coincidences in that there was a guy who was working at the Brando archive. So after ten years since Marlon's death, the the estate thought, okay, well we should be doing more, I think, and they thought, well let's let's you know start with unpacking the boxes that've been in storage for ten years. You know what could we do? Maybe uh, you know a film to commemorate Marlon, you know to keep his legacy alive. So there was the unpacking of the archive and the idea to do the film at the same time. Um, I think R.J. Cutler had been approached in the U.S. I'm not entirely sure how that all worked out, maybe to direct it, but that never happened. R.J. stayed on as a producer in the U.S., but it went really over to the U.K. And, um, and John Batsek at Passion Pictures, who, and I've directed, it's my third film I've directed for Passion. John called me up um, with access with the actors because Austin, who was working in the archive, mm -hmm. he'd, he'd worked with John on another film. So he, so they'd worked previously in the past. Austin was now assembling the, you know, uh, logging the archive mm -hmm. and um, heard about the documentary idea and thought, oh, I know a guy and, uh, um, uh, and approached John. John phones me up and says, uh, uh, you know, do you know much about Marlon Brando? Would you be interested in doing a film on him? 
and, um, and I'm very glad I, I, I said, oh, well, let me do some research on it. And I just went away and I had about three, four weeks to develop a pitch. So I went away and wrote and um, read books and just get just try to get as m trying to think of an original approach and um, and now at that point did you know about all of the audio tapes? I knew we had some stuff. You didn't know, know you had no no we didn't know that and there were still boxes to be unpacked and in the end you know even towards even the end of the edit there'll be another ten tapes coming through and and it was late and I go oh well, let's transcribe them just in case you don't want to see if there's something else in there you never know if you've missed something. And um, so the stuff was coming out and out, and I actually, even though I did the pitch document, because we had to raise finance, sure. and we were supposed to get permission from the estate, so I tried to be bold in my pitch, and, um, and you know, thought, well, what could be more bold? Even I had a handful of about six or seven tapes, and I must admit, they didn't stop me in my tracks, and I was very lucky that the selection I had were really, it happened to be good tapes, you know, mm -hmm. from the whole selection. One was a self-hypnosis tape, just quite, but, but quite, by, quite by accident. I know. I mean, it's quite. It was, it was unbelievably. I mean, when I listened to it, I thought, "Oh my god, this is just like beyond private." And I felt a bit. It felt a bit strange actually listening to it because I felt like I was really Very intruding. Intruding. Yeah, on on here. You know, and it was a bit. But you know, um, um, obviously, it just I felt we have to try to treat treat that with as much sensitivity. But it was interesting just to. To hear his own dialogue with himself, and about you know, he would talk about trust a lot. And this is you can trust me, this is a voice you can trust. I have your interest at heart. It was almost like you know, he just felt that no one else had his interest at heart, and then he could trust himself. Mm -hmm. It was it just it suggested all of that, and I thought that's very curious. And I wonder what's going on under the surface. And I had this idea, I thought, you know, God, can you imagine if the entire story was told in Marlon's own words. Mm -hmm. um, again, which wasn't obvious at the time. It wasn't, you know, cause it, 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 I was just saying, I've seen things where it's been said, oh, it was a gift, all of this. Yeah. yeah, I mean, just everything falling together. And the film was made with the cooperation of the estate and Marlon's daughter, Rebecca. Nice. Um, but... Did you see another viewpoint or... Was your impression of Brando changed through the documentary? What or? I love with this documentary, because when I was fortunate enough to know him, it was in the 80s, and it was over a number of years. Okay. We met going to the same vet. <laughs> <laughs> really? Okay. And his dog was his best friend at the okay. time. My dog was my best friend. And What kind of dog did both of did he have and did you I forget what kind okay. he had. I had a wire-haired dachshund. Okay. But you see him with an animal. He was the sweetest, kindest, gentlest man in the world. Hmm. And it was very funny because when he would take trips to Tahiti right. and he would spend length, uh, because the 80s, he spent a lot of time on his island. Right. And he could, because it was his private island, didn't have to worry about customs or holding your animals or anything. Right. Um, maybe Johnny Depp should have tried going there, you know, <laughs> instead of Australia. Um, but wow, very good. Yeah. Because, you know, his all the pets had, you know, there were fleas and bugs and skin conditions. He would actually call and have the veterinarian package up shampoos and things and ship to Tahiti for him for the animals. Wow. But he was always a lovely yeah. man. He was always very philosophical, talking about good and evil. And you saw that in his work. Yeah. And that really comes through with a lot of these tapes. Yeah. Um, a lot of the preoccupations that he had with good and evil, with trust, which ultimately the irony of it all, because those very things that fascinated him, mm -hmm. 
would become some of his greatest afflictions. Right. You know, when his career right. started waning. But I always found him, he was always very kind to me. Um, somewhere I have a picture of my dog on, on Marlon Brando's lap. Was he magnetic in prison from your... He was a quiet man. Okay. okay. He was quiet. Yeah. Um, but this, of course, was also before... It was after the height of his career. Mm-hmm. In the 80s, he was slowing down. Yeah. And before all the turmoil with his children. Right, right. So it was probably one of the calmer moments of his life. And you see a lot of that, and you hear that in a lot of in a lot of the spin of the documentary. Listen to me, Marlon, mm-hmm. where he reflects on certain films, certain characters, and oh, his wow. displeasure, like <laughs> Mutiny on the Bounty. He's got a lot to say about that and how that was yeah. done. Yeah, not a happy camper. Yeah. But it's very the self self hypnosis tapes are mm. extremely interesting, right. and then to see these visuals interwoven, and there are kinescopes in there. There's family footage. Yeah. It's it's a treasure trove of information. I would consider this the seminal piece on Marlon Brando. Oh, that's amazing for the man who is Brando. Yeah, yeah. but wow, you know he also you know Stephen did a lot of research outside of the tapes and I talked to him about using that that other research to help distill and cull through a warehouse of material it was quite it was quite organized I mean I I, I do a quite lengthy pre-production before I start even mm-hmm. picking the camera or go into the edit so I, it was about three months it was quite a long time and I, in that time I read all the books went out to the states met people listened to as many of the first lot of tapes that were coming through as I could mm-hmm. All the rest were sent off for transcription as the ones that were already out of the boxes. Right. And, um, uh, but I developed an you know, initial proposal document, then a shoot script, mm-hmm. such that, and then the interview notes. And so I just kind of, it was a good body of knowledge you know, to work from to then um, when the transcripts came through and I was going through the highlighter, they, they were really <laughs> off the floor like this, though, <laughs> folders and folders. And so I just sat that, just went up just going through them slowly, highlight note in the margin with a little atomic um, mm-hmm. tab that I'd, that I'd put, you know, whether it was, you know, um, uh, the, any number of things, like relation with his mother, father, or sure. film roles, with a little hyphen and something else attached to it. So, so I had these different nuggets mm-hmm. or, or, or an organising principle, but the labels came from the document, you know, and, sure. and, and obviously it would, there was flexibility there but, but I, I planned a lot of things in the story in advance, that it would be a psychoanalysis from Brando. Mm. It would be looking back on the, after the aftermath of that tragedy in the household. There'd be an investigation into that. There'd be, there'd be a Freudian study and, you know, looking into, I knew Marlon was obsessed by the, you know, solving the problems of his youth. So, I mean, absolutely, you know, and I've got 20 more minutes of interview with Stephen. That yeah. uh, will eventually wind up probably on MovieSharkDeBlur.com and a few other that's, places. Uh, that's great. Yeah. But I wow. think right now we are going to take a short break so Jordan can do a battery change. Okay. And when we come back, we will be talking with Samantha Futterman and Ryan Miyamoto. Okay. Behind the Lens is sponsored in part... By the Culver City Observer. 
Located in the heart of Screenland, Culver City Observer is available in print and online at www.culvercityobserver.com. And welcome back to Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, MovieSharkDeBlore.com. Sitting here with my partner in crime, Greg Srizavazdi, DeepestDream.com. Yes. Yes, and right now... We have joining us, joining us live is Samantha Futterman and Ryan Miyamoto. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi, Ryan. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Fine. Is Samantha there with you? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I'm here too. Ah, well, I am so thrilled you could join us today to talk about Twinsters. What a fun... This is a fun documentary. It's a fun ride and a fun journey that you went on. And it's very personal to you, Samantha. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure it is. For all of our listeners, tell us tell us the what what prompted Twinsters and what exactly what this why is this so personal for you? Well, one day um, I was on my cell phone and I got a message on Twitter telling me to go to Facebook that someone had uh, sent me a message over there. So I went over, I didn't see anything, and then uh, I checked my friend request and saw a picture of myself, and I thought some creepy person created, you know, a page of, you know, one of the fans of um, one of my YouTuber friends. And then I clicked into it and saw that uh, it wasn't me. It was, it was a girl that looked exactly like me, so I accepted her friend request and then got a message saying that... Um, she was uh, doing some research online, saw me, found out that we were born on the same day in the same city, and that we were both adopted. And she made a parent trap joke and asked me what I thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, a parent trap joke, joke is probably the most appropriate thing she could have said. Yeah, definitely. Did you ever at any time have an inkling or suspect? People talk about twins, you know, it's like... They are connected. No matter where they are, there is a sense of connection. Did you ever have that feeling that somewhere out there, there was another, another, another you? No, I never did. I think I think I may have been too busy trying to get my brothers out of my room when I was growing up. But um, my sister did, and, and she's not sure if she can attribute it to um, being an only child or, or whether she was missing me. When did you, Ryan? When did you come into the mix here and? When did the two of you decide that this this would be a perfect documentary and to record this journey? Um, so I started on the project um, when they when they um, first succeeded with their first Kickstarter goal. Mm -hmm. So when that happened, um, one of my good friends Yamato Saboka, uh, he referred me to Sam because they were working together on a project um, like a year prior. And they said, "Oh, we're looking for a GP." They called me up, and I flew out. Like the next week after I talked to them, it was awesome. And Sam, she, when when did you start like documenting? Documenting was like a real in, instinctual process for her. Yeah, yeah, we were documenting from the very beginning without you know even knowing that's what we were doing. And then being in the film business, someone said you know you got to make something. So I, I asked my sister if she wanted to share the story. She said yes, and then we kind of hit the ground running with it. Wow! And as I was telling Greg <laughs> earlier today, it's like you actually. I remember you back in this little film called Dear Lemon Lima <laughs> that my friend Susie Unessi directed, wrote and directed. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's lovely to see life coming full circle and to get to talk to you now about Twinsters. 
how did you how did you go about the logistics of putting this together from not only reconnecting with your sister but your foster your respective foster mothers and then the trip to, the trips to Korea this had to be a logistical juggling act for you yeah it, it you know it was but our whole process kind of took over um almost our first entire year together so we were um things were just unfolding as they would in life and then Ryan was very flexible so he would come out and just shoot whatever we were whatever we decided to do you know um it wasn't necessarily like a production plan or kind of how people do it on reality TV it was it was more just kind of documenting our lives as we went along and since we had great friends working on the project it, it was we were really um, lucky that way mm-hmm. Sam I'm, I'm just wondering for your experience what has it been like to get the immediate feedback from the people who've seen your documentary and they share not they they don't just listen and and experience your story they share their own personal stories with their families to you so i'm i'm assuming that must mean a lot to you just sharing these family stories with other people who've, who've seen your film oh my gosh yeah i mean that's that's the most meaningful part i think in that that's what i'm kind of inspires us definitely and, and I love I love hearing all all of the, uh, the other people's stories too because you know as an adoptee and, and everything my sister and I always connect with other adoptees so we love hearing their stories because they inspire us as well um, but it's been um, it, it, oh, it makes me cry every time really <laughs> because it, it's good to know that, that by sharing our story we're reaching um, so many other people and hopefully can inspire them to continue the idea that you know family has no boundary. Did you have any idea, Sam, the number of Korean children that have been adopted over the years and, you know, the stories behind that predicated all of those adoptions? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I learned um, a year ago around 6,000 babies were adopted my during my year, you know, in 1987. And I've linked up with so many other adoptees now. It's really, it's, it's pretty insane, especially back then, you know, the motives between um, giving children up for adoption then and, and between now is, is really, it's really crazy. But it's exciting to know how much um, the world continues to change as we go on. Now, talk to me about, you have gone on and you have now formed the Kindred Foundation for Adoption. Tell us about <laughs> that. Yeah, absolutely. So Jenna Ushkowitz and I, um, she's one of my close friends now, and she's an executive producer on the project. Um, we started a nonprofit organization called the Kindred Foundation for Adoption, and we aim to be the ultimate resource and the main hub for adoption. So kind of a one-stop shop. If you say, hi, I'm adopted and I want to do this, then you can say that's wonderful, and we'll point you to the organization that specializes in whatever you're looking for. Um, and then in addition to that, we're going to have some DNA testing and, and uh, an online support system, emotional support system 24-7, hopefully within the next year. And then you and your sister have, all, uh, have also now written a book. Yeah, that's, that's true as well, separated at birth. Talk about hitting the ground running. You make a documentary, you just meet for the first time, you make a documentary together, you write a book together. Um, is she designing fashions for you now? Yeah, well, maybe maybe for our birthday, she'll give me one of her beautiful bags that she designed. <laughs> <laughs> now, do you know, you... for you guys, sorry, no. uh, for you guys, uh, Sam and Ryan, just what is the key as far as, you know, collaborating and sharing ideas as well as also 
coming together and making a seamless documentary? What are the challenges and the joys of working together through this experience? Actually, there was hardly any challenges working together. With it, we both had the the same um, same goal to tell the story as as real as possible. There was there was no like intentions like create extra drama, not, not like to be like, okay, this this part would be more better, would be a lot better if we did this and we kind of pushed this. But it was just like telling the story as real as possible. And yeah, that the story is beautiful as it is. So you know. If we tried to push more drama on it, we would mess it up. And I feel, <laughs> I feel like we just kept it real, kept it simple, and kept it just true. Now, this is the directorial debut for both of you. Samantha, you're now moving behind the camera with this one. <laughs> How is that experience for you? What kind of challenges did you face? And then working with your editor, with Jeff Consiglio, how do you narrow down and tell your own story? without, you know, without being too precious with something or making your narrative suffer? Of course, of course. Well, some of the challenges starting it, I mean, we didn't, we had no idea what we were doing. Kanoa Gu and I, my best friend and my producer, who started out from the beginning. So, you know, we had to learn how to do a budget. We had to learn what post-production was. You know, as an actor, you show up on set and then six months later it comes out. <laughs> um we had to learn all of that and what went on, but luckily um, Jeff is a genius and he's such a mentor and, mm -hmm. and um, really respected our vision, um, but also would would um, give his opinions. I mean, he's just a genius when he's cutting the story together. And, and there's been times when we'd all have to sit down and say, I think we need to lose this moment because it's not, it's not helping us with the story, even though, you know, of course, every bit of footage is precious to, to my sister and I. <laughs> um, but we would have had an eight-hour movie, I think, if we, if we hadn't cut anything out. But he was, Jeff is just such a genius, and he's um, really, really respectful for our story. And he wanted to tell the same story that Ryan and I did. Well, I'm just surprised it would only have been an eight-hour movie. I mean, you two have a whole lifetime to catch up on, you know. <laughs> So, how much footage did you guys end up with, Ryan? Oh, quite a lot. They they um they wouldn't let me stop filming. They actually had to like <laughs> feed me while I was filming. We shot so much. <laughs> um, so I don't know what was the count. We have a, we have a lot of footage. I think it must have been like twenty thousand clips. Oh my god! You know, <laughs> one of one of the one and and, and ten thousand clips of it is just them, of them eating. No. <laughs> <laughs> You know, Sam, one of one of the one, wonderful things about watching the doc was the idea that no matter, um, you know, where you came from, the idea that having learning that you have an even bigger family to love is an amazing thing. Can you are you still processing that part of your life, knowing that your family is so extensive? And how has that been just that journey for you personally? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um so difficult to get a, restu a restaurant reservation <laughs> for such a big group, but um, it's it's been pretty amazing. We're actually uh, just you know a few years ago too, just just recently getting in touch with my father's son from his first marriage, and you know our family continues to expand every day, and it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. Now you mentioned you know this directorial experience and budgeting and post production. What did you find the most challenging? And on the flip side, the most gratifying of that directing experience. Um, uh, the challenge, the most challenging, might be um, having to continually watch 
the experience over and over again um, and watch myself. I, I mean, I laugh. There's a point where I was like, I can't even, I don't want to look at myself, my sister. I want to go somewhere where there's no mirrors around. Um, <laughs> but in a way, that was also really gratifying as well because um, it was almost therapeutic in a way when we were going through it. So how can, so now what's next for each of you? Are you going to continue to try and direct more? Uh, for both of you, or are you going to go back just in front of the camera, Sam? What's what's the game plan here? Um, well, I, I mean, I'd love to move on to the production side and begin to create new projects. Um, Kanoa and I are working on an animation project right now. Um, spoiler alert, it might deal with twins. And, um, <laughs> and, and continue to act as well. I mean, I'd love to switch between both and, and be able to also focus on my uh, nonprofit. And as far as for me, I'm, I'm going to be doing a lot more shooting, and I'm also I'm currently in the process of doing a Hawaiian movie, a narrative Hawaiian movie. Um, it's about this, um, <laughs> it's about this, um, this girl's, oh, I, can't. <laughs> I always get bad at saying it. <laughs> it's a, during a time of despair, during a volcanic eruption, and um, some human sacrifice, it's a girl's uh, will to, to uh, save her entire family. And Ryan's a Hawaiian filmmaker. I'm a Hawaiian filmmaker, but I'm not that much of a speaker. Well, guys, I can't thank you enough. What is what's the game plan for uh, Twinsters? I know you're in 31 markets um, or 40 markets uh, this coming Friday. Playing, playing at ArcLight, Regal, AMC's, Cinemarks, all across the country. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a nerve-wracking thing, but we'll be released in select cities nationwide, um, and then and see where that takes us. Hopefully, we can release internationally soon after. Now, I have to ask: given all the footage, all the clips, how much more are we going to see on the director's cut DVD? <laughs> I don't know. Well, luckily, we are. You know, we did get the director's cut because we kept all creative control. So. Um, this is ours, but hopefully there there are some fun tidbits and some fun interviews that maybe we'll be able to release them to some of my family members. Yeah, that is absolutely fantastic. Now, I before I let you go, do you have a website for Kindred Foundation so people can yes, go there? Kindredadoption.org. And do we have a website for Twinsters? Yes, yeah, Twinstersmovie.com. Guys, thank you so so much. I'm gonna we're gonna be on the lookout for that Hawaiian volcano movie. Yes, you should. <laughs> <laughs> and when awesome. you and when you get it done, promise that you will you will come back and you will talk to us again. I would love to. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks so thank much, you. guys. Thank, thank you. you. Bye bye. Twinstersmovie.com. Twinstersmovie.com. Okay. And I love the fact that what Samantha Ananias did was form the Adoption Foundation. Yeah. And yeah. that is, there have been a lot of films, uh, the, a lot of documentaries at the festival level the, the past several years. There were a couple uh, out of LAFF um, where people were reconnecting. And it's in the Asian communities mm. over in Korea, over in Japan, where all of these children, and a lot of them, stemmed from the wars where American right. soldiers would go over and then they left and left behind children yeah. or pregnant soon-to-be mothers. It's so hard for me to just process the entire story of Twinsters. It's still, that's why I'm, I've been kind of a little bit silent. It's just amazing. I guess that, that cliche that 
is it a Bob Dylan song, Simple Twist of Fate? It just, it seemed to, that just happenstance of that occurrence that most likely in many cases that never would have happened that that meeting. No, and if it were not for social media. Right, right. That is what, mm-hmm. we have found the silver lining of social media. And it's a big silver lining. That's a huge silver yeah. lining. I did get a little bit emotional actually watching the doc, actually. You so know, I'm curious. I was very I, emotional. I would love to find out mm-hmm. how many other people may have a similar story All right. to Sam and Aeneas. Yeah. Uh, there have to be, I would think there have to be others out there. And if they aren't, when people see this film, I, I would like to think there may be more good stories like that. Yeah. And it may inspire people to actually search beyond their own. Yeah. It's an, ama- I, yeah, I, I really, it's an amazing story. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, it's, and just watching it and the love, the yeah. immediate connection yeah. that you saw, beto- that you see between them on screen. Yeah. So, yeah, Twinsters, it is all over the United States this Friday uh, in the Regal Theaters, AMC Theaters, Cinemark Theaters, Arclight. Um, and our pals at ArcLight, so really, I'm a reality show guy too. Yeah, I would, I would love to actually follow their stories too because they're such different people mm-hmm. as well, and their respective families because it's really two different sides of the world, really. Yeah. So just a little pitch out there, so. Twinsters as far as being a series. Ah, you so, know. Yeah. So you should have mentioned that to Samantha. I was too uh, processing. Were, I was processing, were, processing the stuff. Yeah. Too tongue-tied so, here. Very tongue-tied. Well. Talk about tongue-tied, and I don't think we're going to get to all three of these clips, but mm-hmm. a fun, fun movie just opened up called okay. Smosh the Movie. What made it fun? It's hilarious. Okay. It's There's slapsticky. There's there's great comedy. Fun and funny. Fun and funny, mm-hmm. and it's based, it stems from the YouTube sensation Smosh, okay. which, uh, starring Anthony Padilla and Ian Hickok, um, 20 million subscribers. It's the third highest channel on YouTube. Okay. And I am an old man. I never even heard of this. And producer Brian Robbins, Brian Robbins, who goes all the way back to the days of Head of the Class. class And a very good director as well. Very good director. uh, Norbit, Shaggy Dog, Hardball. Hardball, which was. I love that movie. Hardball is actually the first film I reviewed after 9 11. Really? Mm hmm. Okay. And he also produced that. And since then, he produced Expelled, which is hilarious. Um, Blue Mountain State, which is one of just the one of many things that he did with the director of Smosh the Movie, Alex Winter. And for those of you that know the name Alex Winter, Bill S. Preston, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures. And since then, Alex Winter has gone on to have many excellent adventures. The most recent one is directing Smosh the Movie. So I had a chance to talk to him the other day and ask him, how did this project come into his hands? Uh, well, I go back a ways with Brian. I mean, Brian and I go back to our acting days. Yeah. Um, so we've known each other a really long time, and I've directed a bunch of stuff that he's produced. I've directed Blue Mountain State and a bunch of other TV, episodic TV. Mm-hmm. So, and he knew that I was in, way into technology, and I'd done downloaded and all this other stuff in the tech space. So... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he contacted me. He was like, "How?" He knew that I sort of bridged this weird world between comedy and technology and all this stuff. So he's like, "Do you know about Smosh?" I was like, "Yeah, of course. I got three boys. Of course, I know about Smosh." Um, and uh, and he said, "Well, Eric Falconer, who I love, who created Blue Mountain State, is writing a script. Would you be interested in directing it?" I was like, 
you know, I, I would love to. Let me look at the script and talk to the Smosh guys. And um, I'm a big fan of Eric's. And uh, and then I met Ian and Anthony, and I was really super impressed with those guys. Um, you know, I know a lot of people in that space. I'm close friends with the Fine Brothers. I've known for a million years. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's a, a space that attracts a lot of different kinds of personalities because, yeah. it, you know, anybody... Not everyone can succeed in that space, but anybody can jump into that space, right? Mm-hmm. It's super democratic in that way. Um, you can come from anywhere. You can do it out of your living room. So I didn't really know what to expect the guys to be like, and they were insanely smart, and they're really lovely guys, and uh, very collaborative. And they were willing, they were aware that they weren't going to be able to do the same exact thing they did in YouTube for a movie. It just wasn't going to travel, right? They were going to have to modify their performative approach and their, their comedy approach and so that their openness to doing that was really exciting to me because i knew that we could be able to make something cool because mm-hmm. they weren't going to be rigid like we just want youtube as a movie because 90 minutes of that pace would just <laughs> blow your head off it would just be unbearable <laughs> um so i knew that we'd have to slow it down and i don't think it's anything you would agree to do no i wouldn't have wanted yeah. to do it and you know ground their performances and and they were really you know super aware that that's what needed to happen so that's what we said about doing but you know and because we're we might run short on time today i'm going to jump to our third clip here but i had a chance because we don't see alex on screen that much anymore Mm -hmm. he primarily is always behind the camera he's got some interesting projects coming up but when he does go in front of the camera like for bones or a uh, part in Grand Piano, mm-hmm. the Elijah Wood, John Cusack film. I love that film. Oh, my God, yes. I'm a Brian Palma Hitchcock fan, so that's right up there. Yeah, that's yeah. same here. And plus Underrated. And film. plus it's got John Cusack. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and we all know. We all know. Right. Um, right. But so what does he look for at this stage of the game after 30-plus, almost 40 years in the business? What does he look for to get him either in front of the camera, behind the cameras, the script, the potential of what he can do? And here's what he had to say. It, it can be a number of things. I mean, I don't tend to act professionally. I, I stopped acting professionally uh, in 93 after I did Freaked. And I really, you know, I still train as an actor because it helps my directing and I like acting. Um, but I don't really do it that much anymore unless I, because I have a lot going on on the other side. Um, so as an actor, it's usually, you know, it's often who, who I'm working with. You know, so for something like Bones, it's like, I love the show, I love the actors, you know, uh, Deschanel is great, everybody involved is great, Stephen Fry was in it, and uh, and I like playing bad guys and clowns. Those are like the two different characters I like playing. I like playing either a clown or a villain. My mom jokes that I, I usually get killed in everything I do, and somehow I came out and did Bones and I got killed, of course, and I did a grand piano and I got killed. And, you know, so it's, it's for, you know, for that type of stuff, it's like, working with people that I think are interesting, filmmakers that I think are interesting, that I'm gonna learn from. Even when I was acting back in those days, I liked learning from the people I was working with. Like on Lost Boys, I would follow Mike Chapman and Schumacher around. I would just soak up everything that they were doing. Um, as a filmmaker or a writer, I'm pretty much, I'm pretty theme driven. So I like, you know, I like working with certain themes. Um, and I like the idea with this thing of, of satirizing the sort of digital revolution. I had just come off of doing Downloaded, the Napster doc, where I'd spent years and years dealing with the very heavy, and then I was dealing with Deep Web, the doc I just finished. This is all while Smash was going on, which is dealing with criminality and, you know, 
people going away for the rest of their life in jail for digital crimes. Sheep and web is the one I really want to see. Yeah, it's super heavy. And the idea of doing something that was light in the tech space that sort of lampooned the YouTube generation and mm -hmm. lampooned the digital revolution and the sort of the kind of quick attention span and the sort of user, the, this idea of like, what is your life and, and what is your identity and how does that relate to your identity online? But doing that in a super light way, mm -hmm. um, that was really appealing to me. So that was what was fun about doing this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he mentions, you know, the fact he did the Bones episode and Stephen Fry was in it, mm. who was just a brilliant, brilliant act, comedic actor. Right. Um, we're going to be talking about a, the, a film uh, a couple weeks from now, that Sugar film, a documentary... Uh, done by a wonderful Australian filmmaker, of uh, which Stephen Fry has a significant part in. Okay, cool. Awesome. You know me and just tying all these little threads and together. Very quickly, I don't know. Did, have you ever seen that? Did you see Download It? That's a No, okay. and I have to see it. It's very interesting, too, along I, with Deep Web, which is coming Deep out. Deep Web is the one I really okay. am anxious to see. Seems very scary, that one. So. Well, d the truth can be scary. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's one of the things that draws Alex and... You know, which is why Smosh was such a great respite for him after mm -hmm. those things. And Smosh just take it, po as he was saying, it pokes fun at the entire YouTube generation, the digital, the technology, and does it in a really fun way with these characters um, from, you know, the Smosh YouTube show. So it's funny even if you're not a YouTube subscriber. Oh, to my God, yeah. And they're great okay. visual touchstones. And Alex has elevated it to a very cinematic level. Okay. Together with his DP, Joe DeSalvo, who he's worked with before. And I have to give a shout-out. His second unit director, his stunt guy, Henry Kinji Jr. Okay. Okay. I was around when Henry Jr. was born. Wow. And I worked with his dad. Nice. So, And then Craig Baxley Jr. is also one of the stunt guys on Smosh and... I worked with his dad and on Dukes of Hazard, so it all comes full circle. It all comes full circle in this town. Let me tell you. And that is our cue. We are done for another week. Next week we had a jam-packed show. We have future filmmaker Carol Nguyen, who's going to be calling us to let us know okay. what she's doing since LAFF. Uh, then we have another f uh, and two directors calling on two very very different films. Okay. So. That's it for today. We'll be back next week behind the lens. Nice.